If we haven't met before, I just want to add my welcome to that that Dave brought earlier, whether you're joining us online this afternoon or whether you're here uh, at Oakwood with us. Uh, my name's Owen, uh, and I'm so glad that you've decided to spend some time with us this afternoon. We're going to uh, continue, as David mentioned earlier, a series that we began a few weeks back uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer, words that would be familiar to many of us. In fact, lots of us would have grown up going to school and, and saying these words regularly. So they just were almost kind of became this routine set of words that we would trot off without really giving much thought to, to what they mean or where they came from. And so we've been spending the last few weeks working through this prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples as a model for how to pray. And, and really, as we're going to see a bit more today, this was a, a model of how to draw close to God, of how to draw near to God and to enjoy intimacy with him. Uh, and so we've, we've read in the last few weeks as we've gone through line by line, verse by verse, thought by thought, up to this point. So, so far we've said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So to recap, so far we've, we've noted in this prayer that amazingly we are invited by Jesus to relate to God as our Father. He says the, the creator of all things, the one who spoke this world into motion, the holy God who who no one can compare to, who has no equal, no rival, invites you to come and know him as your father. It's amazing. And, and then we saw how as we do that, we remember the glory and the greatness of God, the, the holiness of God, the fact that there is, there is no one who's like him, that he's worthy of our worship. And so we, we pray this, hallowed be your name, means your name be set apart, your name be acknowledged or worshipped as holy, as unique, as deserving of praise. In recognition and response to his holiness, then Jesus said we should pray, God, your kingdom come. We cry out, God, you, you are so good, there is no one like you. Lord, would your kingdom, would your rule and reign come on earth? Would, would people live in obedience to you, respond to your goodness and live the way you designed them to? Would your will be done? And then the prayer continues off the back of that as this reminder as we looked at together last week to pray to God, give us this day our daily bread. It's this daily coming back to God and reminding ourselves in prayer as we come to him that we are utterly dependent on him for our provision. We're, we're dependent on him for the breath in our lungs. It's him who provides that for our every need. But it goes beyond the physical as Dave reminded us last week that actually God provides in himself for us. He provides all that we need physically but emotionally and spiritually God provides in himself. Jesus himself is our daily bread whom we come to to be satisfied, who we come to 
for fulfillment who we come to for our hunger to be met and our thirst to be quenched. We find our true satisfaction and fulfillment in in Jesus, not in anything or anyone else. Those things fail to fulfill what they promise us, but Jesus is the one who truly satisfies. And this prayer continues then. As we daily thank him for these truths, it should lead us on, Jesus says, to pray this, forgive us our debts and this is where we're going to continue today so if you if you do have your bibles we're in the same chapter and verses we've been in for the last few weeks we're in matthew chapter 6 and today from verse 12 jesus says we are to pray forgive us our debts now before we go any further i think it's really important that we remember who the us is in this prayer when jesus teaches us to pray forgive us our debts we have to remember Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples his followers his friends those who were trusting him to save them in our language today Christians this is a prayer for those who call God father The us who are taught to daily ask for forgiveness here are those who through Jesus know God as Father and who worship him in his holiness and recognize him and his provision for them. Those are the ones who are taught daily to ask God to forgive them. So if you call yourself a Christian today, Jesus says there's this daily rhythm of prayer that as we look to God for our provision and as we find ourselves satisfied in him, we are also to come to him and say, forgive us, Father, of our debts. So what are we to ask him to forgive us of? Jesus uses this word here, here, debts. And he uses it to refer to sin. It's not about financial or economic or monetary debts it's about our sin which is a slightly unusual way of thinking about sin isn't it I I don't know maybe you don't think it's an unusual way of thinking about sin but I think it's a a slightly peculiar way to view it so we tend to think of sin as a rebellion against God as a rejection of his ways and we don't have any trouble in necessarily thinking about sin in that way as saying God I want to do things my way not yours and so we, we're comfortable with that. But then to phrase sin as a debt feels like a slightly abstract concept. Because a debt is amassed when we fail to give or pay something that is due to someone, isn't it? Yeah, so if you get in debt financially, it's because you have failed to pay off something that is due to someone else. Is that... Yes? You're all familiar with that concept. Good. Hopefully not from practical experience, but through just understanding that's how the world works. And we can think of sin in in two broad ways in the Bible. We think of sins of commission 
And that's just a, a kind of fancy way of saying things that we do that we shouldn't do. So maybe you think of things like the Ten Commandments and you might think there's stuff like thou shalt not, like thou shalt not steal or commit adultery or those things. And you think, well, okay, I understand. If I do one of those things, then that is sin. That's a sin of commission. It's doing something that you are told not to do by God. And I think most of the time, that's the way we often think about sin. We tend to think of it as stuff we've done, like the bad stuff we do that we shouldn't do. But the other large category of sin that we find in the Bible, and actually I think is, is more clearly addressed with this idea of debt, and is probably more frequently the way the Bible pictures sin, is sins of omission. And that is a failure to do something that we should do. Yeah. So rather than doing something we shouldn't, sins of commission, sins of omission are a failure to do something that we are supposed to do. See, we were created as humanity in God's image to relate to him, to enjoy intimacy with him, to actually to reflect his goodness and glory, to live in obedience to him in such a way that, that we flourish and that those around us are blessed and God is glorified. As those created in his image for his glory, we owe God a debt, as it were, of obedience. Jesus summarized all of the commands, all of the law of God, all of the way that we are designed to live in this way. He said that the most significant and important of all the commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, with every fibre of your being, with every breath, with every moment, with every thought, with every word, with every action, with every, every ounce of who you are, to love God with all that you've got. Now, I don't know about you, but that very quickly makes me realise there's some sin of omission in my life. Because I don't love God in that way. In fact, if I'm really honest, I'm not sure there's even been a millisecond of my life in which I have truly loved God with every ounce of who I am in that way. And I think it's probably safe to say that the same is true of you. And then Jesus said there was another command that was like that one. He said, to love your neighbor as yourself. He said that all the law was, could be summed up in these two commands. But again, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever truly loved my neighbor as myself. And I, it's not some kind of mushy, sentimental love. It's like every good thing that I want for myself, 
every comfort, every provision, everything that I would want for myself, I want with just as much fervor and just as much passion and just as much intent for my neighbor as for myself. I don't know about you, but I don't think I love my neighbors that way. Even the ones that I really do care for. In fact, I think if we're really honest, even those closest to us, even our family, we probably don't always love, in fact, possibly never really love in quite that way. And so again, in just those two simple statements, love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being, with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself, we suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I, uh, there are sins of omission. I owe a debt of obedience to God that I have not fulfilled. This is a problem. Because the Bible actually is very clear that, that one day we will stand before God and be called to account for how we've responded to him in this life. And in that moment, there are two options. One is that we stand condemned in our debts. <laughs> that we've failed to give God is due. We've, we've failed to, to live in this way and so we have amassed in our lifetime a huge, a monumental debt of sin. Or we stand in Jesus, in Christ, as our only hope. We stand in him who has paid in full our debt. His death at the cross covering our sin and shame once and for all, cancelling our debt fully. And so we stand before God. It's paid. Paid in full. The debt of our sin cancelled out completely. For anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them, who said, Lord, forgive me. I, I trust in you. Thank you for what you did at the cross on my behalf. That you paid that debt for me. For anyone who has put their faith in Christ, then the debt of past, present and future sins has been cancelled completely. Fully absorbed. Their standing before God is secure. And nothing and no one can ever take that away. Nothing and no one can ever take that away. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and I hope that some of you know that security. You profess that hope today in Jesus. And if you don't, then I want to say, <laughs> I'd love to speak to you afterwards. That you can know that assurance of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed hope and security but if that's the case if Christians have had their debt cancelled 
They've been forgiven. They're free. Then why does Jesus here teach Christians to daily pray, forgive us our debts? Strange, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like if you think, okay, Christians stand before God forgiven, holy, because of what Jesus has done. And yet Jesus here says, daily, we're to pray, forgive us our debts, our sins. If Jesus has already dealt with it at the cross, what's the point? Well, the point is this. As I said at the beginning, this prayer is a prayer about intimacy with God. This prayer is a prayer about drawing near and enjoying relationship with God. As Jesus taught his followers to pray this, he was teaching them, this is how you draw near to God. This is how you nurture your relationship and your intimacy with God day by day by day by day. How you grow close to him. See, the biggest problem of sin is that it separates us from God. It's what Jesus came to deal with at the cross so that we might come into relationship with him so that we might know him as father and walk with him daily. If you are in Christ, nothing can change that. God will not punish you for your sin because he punished Jesus on the cross in your place. But when your sin remains unconfessed, when you go on as a Christian walking in sin, then it causes a distance and a lack of intimacy in your relationship with God. It causes you to feel distant. There's a lack of intimacy that comes. I I, I don't know if you've ever noticed that in your own life. Maybe I can just speak for myself, for my own personal experience, although I think the Bible is very clear on this matter. I know That when I'm falling to temptation, I don't feel close to my Heavenly Father. I struggle to engage in worship. I struggle to pick up my Bible and, and read it. And I'm pretty confident I'm not alone in it. Which is why Jesus taught his followers and in turn taught us to pray this way. To daily come back and say, Lord, forgive us our debt. When we seek to excuse or minimize our sin, when we, in our shame, seek to hide it away, we think, gosh, I I shouldn't have done that. And we we bury it away because we feel ashamed to admit it, ashamed to confess it. Worried, What what if they knew that about me? We hide it away. What happens? It gnaws away at our souls. It eats us up inside. Because we know there's hypocrisy there. And it steals us of our joy. It robs us of intimacy with our Heavenly Father. When you hide your sin away, it festers. And you settle for less than God has for you. A kind of spiritual sickness sets in that leaves you weak and distant from God. 
But when you come and confess, when you ask forgiveness as Jesus taught his followers to do, here there is freedom to be found. Not hiding in fear, not trying to bury the shame, but open and honest. No hiding or pretense what happens. You're welcomed, you're forgiven, you're free. This is why Jesus taught us to pray this way. I I love the way this experience is expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 32. It's going to come up on the screen, but do feel free to turn there with me. Psalm 32 expresses this experience of the kind of sickness and rot that comes as we try and bury our sin, as we leave it unconfessed, as we hide in our shame. And in contrast, the the incredible freedom and joy as we find forgiveness in God. There's this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then he says this about this experience of hiding it. For when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, when I hid it, when I pretended it weren't there, when it remained unconfessed in my life, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is poetic, incredibly descriptive language. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of experience. As you just know you're distant from your heavenly Father, and you think, gosh, I feel so dry, like I'm shriveled up. It's the heat of summer. I'm just parched. I need quenching. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And what joy did the psalmist experience is what we read at the beginning. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered, whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Is this, I don't know where you sit today. Are you experiencing that joy and freedom of like, amazing Lord, you don't count my sins against me. Or is there something that you're holding on to that's gnawing away inside, that's remained unconfessed and has caused this distance to grow in your relationship with God that you experience as the psalmist did, this groaning, is a very real kind of spiritual sickness that many Christians experience we stop enjoying the grace of God we stop delighting in his goodness and we begin to take on ourselves the shame and guilt of our sin this prayer that Jesus gave us to daily come to our heavenly father and say forgive us our debts to be honest and open and transparent about the ways in which we failed to live 
in the way he's called us to, for our good and for his glory. This prayer is a call to freedom. It's a call to stop living in the shadows of your guilt and shame and instead to step into the glorious light of his forgiveness. It's an invitation to freedom. It's an invitation to liberty. I'll give you an illustration, a very experience I had as a child that I hope might kind of paint some of this in colour if you're struggling to join the dots. When I was in year five, we had some new woodwork benches at school. Not many primary schools at the time, I don't think, like had, but it was a new build school we moved into and we had these like brand spanking new woodwork benches. And I thought it would be really fun one day with some of my friends to, to put a nail in the vice and to tighten it up and see what happened. And they weren't metal-faced vices, they were wooden-faced vices. And, and what happened as I tightened it was that the nail buried itself in both sides of the vice and jammed it shut. And it couldn't be opened. I couldn't open it. My friends couldn't open it. My woodwork teacher couldn't open it. <laughs> and I didn't admit I'd done it. My teacher knew. I think he really did know. But I denied it. I hid it. It wasn't me. It must have been someone else. I've no idea what's happened to that vice. I don't know why it won't open, sir. Mr. Humwick, I don't know why it won't open. I've no idea. And I went home. And he had called my parents. And I protested my innocence to my parents. I hid my sin. I, I don't know why it won't open, mum and dad. And my mum and dad grilled me on it. They said, okay, son, we trust you. You're normally very honest. We trust you. I got really upset with them. I don't know why Mr. Humwick's so cross with me. I haven't done anything wrong. My parents booked a time to come into school to speak to Mr. Humwick and to say, our son's innocent. You need to stop telling him off for this thing he hasn't done. And all the while, my shame, my guilt was eating me up inside. I knew I was guilty. I knew I'd done wrong. And yet I hid it. I hid it. And I hid it. And I was a wreck. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've protested your innocence before God or before people and inside it just eats away at you because you know, like you know you're not innocent. And in the end, I fessed up just at the last before my parents sat with my teacher. <laughs> and there was a consequence to my actions. <laughs> there was a consequence and rightly so. But I tell you what, there was forgiveness too. And the moment I admitted it to my parents, the moment I brought it out into the light, 
the weight off me was unreal. It's the most incredibly liberating feeling. I want to encourage you. Jesus' words in this prayer are to ensure that we don't approach God like I did my parents over that nail in the vice. I feared anger and punishment. I certainly was deserving of both. And so are we actually before God. But this is the great and glorious truth. This is the invitation for us today is that Christ has fully absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. He bore on his own body the penalty for your sin. And now he bids you come to bring it out into the light. Not fearing rejection, not fearing punishment, fearing anger for he has absorbed those things on your behalf but instead to come and to find forgiveness to know the freedom and liberty and joy oh thank you Jesus in coming daily and seeking his grace there is an opportunity to live before God openly knowing the joy of forgiveness and in turn intimacy with the father That's what this prayer is all about. Christians, you're not expected to walk in sinless perfection, so don't pretend you do. Yeah? You're you're not expected to walk without fault, so don't pretend you do. You're invited instead to know the joy of forgiveness. This isn't a call to complacency or a, a kind of blase attitude towards sin in your life it's not kind of like hey ho it doesn't matter that's not what this is supposed to nurture in us there should be a desire to walk in obedience to please our heavenly father to respond to his great love for us in love and obedience to him but but also an openness to admit when we fall short and to know the joy daily of our sins forgiven. To daily come and recognize, Lord, I know that there are ways that I I haven't loved you with my whole heart. Even in this moment, I don't love you with my whole heart. Oh, that I did, but I don't. Lord, would you forgive my debts? Would you help me to live for you? Fill me by your spirit. Help me to live this day for your glory and for the good of those around me. This is the kind of thing we read in, in 1 John chapter 1. From verse 8, we read this, it says this, Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the hope we have. What an amazing hope. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. This call to daily repentance that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer should be a wake-up call for us. I think we have to be real about the fact that if there comes a point where you have to be prepared to consider that if you're content to go on living in your sin, then perhaps you're not a Christian. There's a reality to that. 
Okay, if there's no desire in you to please God, only to please yourself, if there's no desire in you to draw close to him, then, then I think, biblically speaking, that should be a serious red flag for you. Because the person who has received new life in Christ cannot be the same anymore. Like if you've become a Christian, you, you cannot just go on living just the way you always did. The Bible's unambiguously clear on this point. When you become a Christian, God makes you new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You can't go on living exactly the same way. It's impossible. And so if you have no desire to please God and no desire to live in obedience to him, then I I, want to lovingly and gently suggest that I, I think there's a very real probability that you're not a Christian. But you can come and know forgiveness. You can come and say, Lord, would you give me a new heart that beats for you? Would you forgive me? In confidence, knowing that the answer is yes, he will. It doesn't mean that for Christians there's no fight with sin. All Christians live with this attention, but there is a desire at least, a desire to please him. This is the offer of this prayer. Seek forgiveness, knowing that he's ready and willing to do it. Daily seek and find the grace of God, knowing that he's longing to give it to you. Come to God in full assurance and confidence that he won't turn you away. But he'll draw you close. And there's incredible freedom to be found. But Jesus doesn't leave it there in this talk of forgiveness and debts. He he carries straight on saying, We are to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Ah. And a few verses later, he seems to expand on this very point and underline it by saying, from verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, (laughs) hang about. It seems like Jesus links us forgiving others with it being possible for us to be forgiven. As though God's grace towards us or willingness to forgive us is contingent on us and dependent on us first forgiving others. It's as though unforgiveness is unforgivable. It's like the one act of obedience that Jesus commands on which our salvation hinges. But that cannot be. And that is not so. See, Scripture is very clear. We cannot earn or merit our salvation. We cannot earn or merit God's favour. We don't earn God's forgiveness by first forgiving others. We read in Ephesians 2, salvation is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. If it were dependent on us first forgiving other people before we could receive forgiveness from God, then that would make it our works. 
not his grace. What Jesus is teaching us here, though, is that our ability to release the debts of others is proof or evidence that we've understood our debts against God. It's not a means by which we receive forgiveness, but it is a mark of those who have received forgiveness, who have tasted of his goodness, who do know the grace of God. The only means by which we can be saved is the the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. But there are marks for those who are saved, evidences observable in our lives. And one of those is forgiveness. The, the picture Christ is painting here he expands more fully in Matthew chapter 18 with a picture of two servants. We're not going to read the whole passage now, but this is essentially what happens. There's, there's two servants. One of them comes to, is brought into his master and he owes a monumental debt. This servant represents us and the debt that we owe God through our sin. This servant owes his master 10,000 talents. A talent is about a year's wages. 10,000 talents, he owes 10,000 years wages to his master. We're going to go roughly, depending on what you earn. Around here it would probably be more because we're fairly highly paid on average in this area. But just we're going to go, this is about three billion pounds he owes. his master brings him in and he pleads forgive me and remarkably his master writes off the debt as this is what happens for us before God the debt of our sin is fully dealt with through Jesus at the cross overwhelming even three billion pounds is not a drop in the ocean compared with the debt of sin that we owe against God and God forgives us but then you know what this man does He goes out and he finds another servant who owes him some money. And and the guy that owes him some owes him a hundred denarii. Denarii is about a day's wages. So bear in mind, he was forgiven 10,000 talents, 10,000 years wages. His friend owes him a hundred days wages. Maybe seven and a half thousand pounds compared to three billion pounds. And he has his friend thrown into prison. He won't write it off. He says, you stay there in prison until your debt is settled. He hasn't understood at all what the master did for him. The the idea that this guy who has been forgiven such a huge debt, being so miserly and unforgiving with the man who owes him such a comparatively tiny, minuscule amount is laughable. It's supposed to kind of make us go, that's ridiculous, who wouldn't do that? And that's what Jesus means about the way we respond to others. See, no matter what someone's done to you, no matter the depth or hurt they've caused to you, Jesus says it's, it's, it's tiny. It's like seven and a half grand compared with three billion. Compared with what God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And when we know all that we have been forgiven from against whom we have sinned, how could we possibly hold unforgiveness against others? make any sense does it 
The truth is, when we understand the depth of our sin and the joy of knowing our sins forgiven, when we know that we deserve death and yet gloriously in his kindness we receive life, daily coming back to him and celebrating that truth, knowing the joy of forgiveness and intimacy with God, it makes it comparatively easy to forgive others. This is what we're called to. Yet if we are unwilling to forgive others like the servant in Matthew 18, it just reveals we haven't really understood the grace of God in our own lives. And when we allow ourselves to pick up and hold on to unforgiveness towards others, it also begins to cheer us up. In the same way as unconfessed sin it stops us from enjoying and drawing close to God. The reason that this passage is about asking forgiveness of God and forgiving others is that both of those things have the same effect if they're left unresolved. If our sin remains unconfessed, it distances us from our Heavenly Father. And if we hold unforgiveness against others, it does exactly the same thing. It prevents us from drawing close to Him and enjoying Him and knowing the freedom of forgiveness. Yet when we remember the kindness of God in our lives, the debt of sin we've been forgiven, it makes it impossible to hold on to unforgiveness of others. I'm not pretending it's easy. There'll be times when hurt is very real, very deep, and very profound. And you need to keep coming back. But there's incredible freedom to be found in knowing and giving forgiveness. This is not a weight of condemnation. This prayer is an invitation to freedom and an invitation to enjoy the goodness of God. He's for you. His heart is for you. He wants you to know the joy of freedom, forgiveness. God is not a miser wanting to spoil your fun or your freedom. He's a loving Father who wants you to experience and enjoy true freedom this call to daily ask for forgiveness is not a call to wallow to wallow in the mire or to live in misery or to walk around like oh what a terrible sinner i am <laughs> i think that's the picture some people have like that when we're supposed to daily come and ask for forgiveness we kind of oh woe is me i'm such a terrible person that's not the picture here this is an this is an invitation to be real to confess our failure, but as we do, to know the incredible joy of our sins forgiven. To be fully known, to be seen for who we are, and yet fully loved, is incredibly liberating. And when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So we gladly come and pray, Father, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us.